I'm Talib Bizram, and you're listening to Fast Break, your weekly source of inspiration and motivation in these uncertain times. As the country grapples with the ongoing protests over police brutality, we decided to do a show focused on police reform and some of the changes that different organizations are proposing. This is your Fast Break. Almost six years ago, Michael Brown was shot and killed by police in Ferguson, Missouri, causing a massive outcry around the country. It also sparked several efforts to reform policing, but since then, there has been little evidence of substantial change. Joining us again is Fast Company assistant editor, Kristen Toussaint, to discuss one possible solution, defunding the police. Welcome back to the show, Kristen. Thanks, Talib. After Michael Brown's death, and now in the wake of police killing George Floyd in Minneapolis, there have been increased calls for defunding the police. What would that look like? When activists call for defunding the police, it's about making sure there's less policing in communities by finding alternatives to the things that police do now. So that could be making sure mental health experts are the ones responding to 911 calls that have to do with mental health issues. It's also about diverting funds that usually go to police departments to instead be invested back into the community, whether through safety nets or community programs that could prevent these issues that police respond to from even existing in the first place. In a recent op-ed in The Guardian, Brooklyn College sociology professor and the author of The End of Policing, Alex Vital, wrote, the alternative is not more money for police training programs, hardware, or oversight, but to dramatically shrink their function. He said we must demand politicians develop non-police solutions to the problems that poor people face by investing in housing, employment, and healthcare to target the problems of public safety. He also said, instead of criminalizing homelessness, we need publicly financed supportive housing. Instead of gang units, we need community-based anti-violence programs, trauma services, and jobs for young people. Instead of school police, we need more counselors, after-school programs, and restorative justice programs. So just how much do police departments receive in funding? In many cities, the police department's funding is a huge line item in the budget. In New York, the city pays around $6 billion for its police department annually. That's more than the city allocates to homeless services, housing preservation, and the health department combined. Los Angeles pays around $3 billion when you include things like pensions and retirement, building services, and liability claims. And that ends up being nearly a third of the city's total spending. Chicago spends at a similar level. And a 2017 study found that Oakland spend 41% of its city expenditures on police. Wow. Well, it seems like a propitious time to be talking about police funding since cities are now drafting next year's budgets. Given the economic toll the pandemic has taken on the country, and the necessary budget cuts that cities have had to make, how are they addressing this issue of police funding? Cities are definitely tightening their belts across almost all departments, except for police. New York City is seeing a $9 billion deficit because of the economic fallout from the COVID-19 pandemic. Mayor Bill de Blasio's proposed 2021 fiscal year budget would cut the NYPD's budget by only 0.39%. For context, it cuts the Department of Education's budget by 3% and the Department of Youth and Community Development, which funds after-school programs, literacy services, and summer youth work programs by 32%. Wow. In Los Angeles, the LAPD's budget was actually slated to increase by $123 million, which included $41 million in bonuses for officers who have college degrees 
even when many other city workers were being furloughed or saw pay cuts because of the pandemic. LA Mayor Eric Garcetti announced this week, though, that he's scrapping that planned increase and will instead cut the department's budget by between $100 and $150 million, which is part of an effort to invest $250 million from the city's entire budget into jobs, education, and the health of LA's Black communities. He said that change came from hearing protesters make calls to divert police funding. But this issue of big police budgets is still present in a lot of cities because we've seen them amp up their policing in recent years. When Minneapolis passed its 2020 budget in December 2019, it totaled police expenditures to $193 million, which is about 60% more than the $119 million that the city's Community Planning and Economic Development Department received. Washington, D.C.'s proposed 2021 budget would add $1.7 million to the Metropolitan Police Department's budget, even as it aims to cut $166 million from other agencies. I mean, as some critics might point out, national crime levels have gone down over the past three decades as police spending has gone up. So isn't it helping? Yes, the national crime has dropped over the same time period that police funding has increased. But the Center for Popular Democracy says that that drop is in spite of increased spending, not because of it. In a 2017 report from the Center, they noted that studies have shown a living wage, access to holistic health services and treatment, educational opportunity, and stable housing to be far more successful in reducing crime than police or prisons. And even if crime drops, that doesn't necessarily address the problem of our prison population. In Minnesota, even as crime rates declined since the 1990s, the state's prison population grew, reaching one of its highest levels in 2013. So just coming back to police reforms, what are some reasons police departments are so slow to change their ways? This is something my coworker Adele Peters looked into. And she spoke with Jesse Janetta, a senior policy fellow at the nonprofit Urban Institute, who told her about how deep these problems really run in the system. In the South, policing grew out of a system that was designed to control slaves, and much of the current system in the US today was put in place when Jim Crow laws were in effect. So Janetta said, you know, it's really about changing police culture and the mindset of a department more than it is about making changes like making officers wear body cameras. So in recent years, there's been a lot of talk about implicit bias in policing. Can you touch on that a bit? The bias in the criminal justice system is really staggering. Adele touched on this too in her article, noting that one review of millions of traffic stops found that Black Americans are nearly twice as likely to be pulled over than white Americans even though white people drive more often. Police are more likely to target black people for suspicion of crime. Black people are more likely to be charged for drug crimes than white people, even though white people use and sell drugs at similar rates. 13% of the US population is black, but 27% of those who are arrested are black. Black people are more likely to be detained before trial than white people and nearly six times more likely to be incarcerated. And some people may point out that white people are killed in higher numbers by police than black people, but you have to put it in perspective to these populations. A 2015 study found that an unarmed black American is more than three times as likely to be shot by police than an unarmed white American. Some staggering figures. What are some ways police defunding could help communities? Police defunding would help by really lessening the power that police have, which could even reduce city-related expenses around legal fees for police misconduct. And that would in turn free up even more millions of dollars that cities could use to positively build up their communities. 
From 2006 to 2012, Minneapolis paid nearly $14 million in lawsuits related to excessive force leading to death or injury and cases involving property damage during raids and the use of racial slurs amongst their police department. In New York City, between June 2017 and June 2018 alone, taxpayers spent $230 million to settle more than 6,000 lawsuits against the NYPD. But defunding would also help by allowing cities to invest in their communities preventatively to stop these issues from existing in the first place. It's a solution that the Urban Institute calls Invest Divest, which is about taking money from police budgets and putting it towards other community resources, like education, jobs, and housing. In some other cases, activists say that more funding should go to trained conflict mediators and those who can reduce violence outside of the police. In other cases, activists say that more funding should go to trained conflict mediators and others who can help reduce violence outside of the police. And there's also been an increase in civilian anti-violence work, whether it's violence interrupters or street interventionists or gang outreach workers. There's this increased field of people that are doing public safety work and sometimes they're going out and engaging with people they know might be at the high risk of shooting and being shot and start by building a rapport and then trying to get them involved in services that could lead them towards a different trajectory. Well, let's hope there are some changes because this all sounds very inspiring. I think now is definitely the time to start looking at these changes. Definitely. Well, thanks for coming on the show again, Kristen. Thanks, Talib. We'll be right back after this short break. In 2007, Brandon Anderson lost the love of his life to police violence. When his partner was killed, he was motivated to use his data expertise to address the pernicious problem of police brutality that took his partner's life. Anderson is now the founder of Rahim, an independent service for reporting police interactions. It's so great having you on the show, Brandon. Welcome. Thank you. It's good to be here. So let's talk about how Rahim works. How can people use it? Sure. So Rahim is the independent service for reporting police in the United States. People should report police to Rahim after every encounter with an officer, regardless of the outcome. This helps us build a national record of every officer's conduct, which comes in handy when an officer is terminated from one department and tries applying to another department, say, uh, in a different state. And people can go to rahim.org, and right there on the front page are two very important questions about where the incident took place and how the police officer treated you, and then you just hit add the report. Hmm. It's as simple as that. How can people use Rahim during the current protests in response to the killing of George Floyd? Well. Two days ago, we released Rahim.org slash protest, which all of Rahim is a mobile responsive website. It's not yet an app. We made that choice mostly based on accessibility for people who might not have space on their phone, but still need to report police. So Rahim.org slash protest is sort of an accelerated service where there are only three questions. You can upload a video or a photo, and then we blur those photos with faces and stuff like that. That's how people have mostly been using Rahim to report how they've been treated by police during the protests. So is this all addressing kind of the lack of data and transparency? Yes. So as you mentioned, 
I founded Rahim after losing my life partner and fiance to police violence during a routine traffic stop. His love was radical, unapologetic, and it completely changed my life. The officer that killed him had a long history of being violent. And I later learned that no one reported the officer because our local police department, like most of the 18,000 police departments in the US, requires residents to file complaints in person at the police station during business hours and sometimes in many places, say for instance, like St. Louis, within 90 days. So as a result, only 5% of people report police violence, right? So 95% of police violence is never reported. And when police violence goes unreported, officers cannot be held accountable. So they become repeat offenders. And not only do they become repeat offenders, they escalate in their police crimes, right? So in 1999, if a police officer was shoving you or calling you the N-word, by 2007, without holding that officer accountable, that officer has grown into a person who will shoot you for not getting out of your car, for instance. And the second, perhaps most important part is that the policies that shape constitutional policing are not grounded in the lived experiences of the people most impacted by police violence. So a lack of clear, actionable data continues to enable police violence across the country. Could you talk a little bit about how you then help people who have been through this? Sure. So when people report police to Rahim, an advocacy team helps them get justice and healing by connecting them to a free lawyer, opening an investigation against the officer, and or publicizing their story using our media partnerships. We'll be able to connect people to trained mental health counselors in the near future. That's what we do for the individual in the short term. We're also looking at institutional change. And that comes through our work with policy. So in collaboration with police oversight boards and community organizations, Rahim leverages the data from the community-driven reports to advance policies that are grounded in the experiences of the people most impacted by police. And these policies typically aim to shrink the role of police and expand the capacity for communities to create community safety for themselves. One example is we've had, over the past few months, we've had lots of people who have reported to us being abused by police, all people who are living homeless, right? So one person was peeing outside uh, and defecating outside. They got an infraction and an officer had harassed them for a bit. Another couple was, two couples, one was harassed by an officer for you, uh, for arguing and disturbing the peace, being allowed outside. And lastly, we had a couple who was harassed and then arrested by an officer because they were having sex outside. These are all things that I do, right? I use the bathroom, I have sex with my partner, and I most certainly argue with my partner, maybe sometimes too much. <laughs> but I have a house to do it in. I have a place to live. And so instead of investing money in training police officers on how to be more compassionate to people living homeless. We invest in a rapid mobile response team of medical practitioners who are trained and know exactly how to treat people experiencing mental health trauma. That is the way we shrink the role of police and expand the capacity for the infrastructure for communities to care for themselves. Thanks, Brandon. And for our listeners, we're going to also include the links to Raheem on our show notes so you can access them. 
And now joining us to continue this conversation is co-founder and senior vice president of Justice Initiatives at the Center for Policing Equity, Dr. Tracy Kissee. Well, welcome to the show, Tracy. It's great to have you. Thank you so much. I appreciate being here. So the Center for Policing Equity engages in several projects, including partnering with local police departments across the country and creating policies for public safety. It also just received donations of a million dollars from YouTube and another million from Netflix CEO, Reed Hastings. So along with its current work, what does the center plan to do in the wake of the ongoing protests over police brutality? Great question, so thank you again. So first, what we plan to do is to continue our work and then expand upon that. So when you receive the generosity that we receive, not just from those corporations, but from many other individuals, it's a message to us that this work is deeply needed. So we'll expand on that. We'll also not just do what we call you know, analysis with use of force, traffic stops, and all those things where you see disparities, but allows us to also work with the chiefs to talk about what's happening from a policing cultural perspective and how not just policies are gonna be changed, but there's gonna to have to be a fundamental change in the way in which we're engaging and how we are defining what it means to provide public safety. Sure. So now what I'd like to do is open this up to the both of you as we talk about some large-scale ambitious solutions to police reform that are being floated at the moment. First, we talked to the top of the show about defunding police and how activists are calling for city officials to shrink the police force altogether through the power of the budget. So let me go to Tracy first and, and then to Brandon. What are your thoughts on shrinking the size of police forces? So I, I absolutely understand where that perspective would come from, but I would say first, how about we fund black communities? There are so many things that need to be done and we always seem to be fighting over a dollar. Not to say that there's not any changes that need to happen in policing, but how about we fund black communities the way in which they need to be funded? We're in desperate need of mental health, we're in desperate need of numerous things. And it is time to stop trying to make us battle for the little dollar and do what's right. And that is put the funds where the funds are needed. That's really interesting. Brandon, any thoughts? I have been a proponent of defunding the police now for about a year and a half. I'm an abolitionist. I wanna live in a world where there are no police. So if you're asking me about the defunding of police, I'd say that it is the genesis to what I'd ultimately like to see in my lifetime. Well, you know, now that you touch upon that, let, let's talk about that. Some people have been calling for completely abolishing police forces. What would that even look like? Well, before we get into that question, I think it's really important to understand what abolition is. The best way that I've been able to describe abolition to my friends who think I'm all crazy is the questions that we ask ourselves and when we ask them, right? So uh, the scenario that many perhaps reformists would ask is, let's say, for instance, you're loading your groceries into the back seat and trunk of your Subaru at Sam's Club with your family. And a person who's living homeless comes up to you and says, hey, give me your groceries. He has a gun. And so the first thing that reformists like to say is, who will you call? Who will protect you? If you ask Black people who will protect you in the question of, in the face of abolition, they will respond, who has protected us before? But the question that should be asked is not who will you call? It is 
the framework that should be applied here is why is there a man who is living homeless with no food, no access to fresh water, fresh food, clean water, in a world that can produce 25,000 billionaires who own 40% of global wealth? How is that possible? So I love Tracy's answer. We need to invest in Black people and stop trying to solve centuries of capitalism, racism, homophobia, misogyny, ableism, and homelessness with police and by arresting people. We need to invest in the communities who have long both had the courage and the know-how to build fundamental solutions that solve the problems that both reduce crime and build community infrastructure for themselves. And Tracy, what are your thoughts about the abolition of police forces? So, I mean, just to, like I said in my you know, opening response to your question, and, and you know, Brandon doesn't need me to lift this up. We have police working in spaces where they, we really have to think about what is happening to the just overall structures of support, right? So when you have police officers trying to do mental health responses, when you have officers trying to do social distancing enforcement, you know, so you clearly can get a sense of what is the role of public safety and who gets to determine who is safe from who and what. And so what I really do appreciate about Brandon's words as a Black woman is that we have historically in our own communities, doctors, folks who had, you know, psychologists, people who understood and understand what those specific and unique stressors are. And I always have to go back to one of the solves for policing historically has been to diversify the ranks. And one of the conversations that we you know, are also not having in, in this same space is really about, you've got black officers on that front line with everyone else. And you also have them inside organizations as well as women and everyone else that are feeling some of the same stress and pressures in that organization that they would be on the street. And no one that I can think of, myself included, has ever had to be made to choose between protecting your community or who are you going to stand with. It's a false choice in every which way. Yet, that's the struggle. And I think what's really different about what's happening now, at least what I feel is different what's happening now, there cannot be a sort of dusting off of things and thinking that's going to make it right and that this is gonna be the way that we move forward. And as I said earlier, and many times this today, if policing is not fundamentally different on the other side of this, whatever that means, then we really have not learned anything. Sure. Well, that was really powerful. Um, any final thoughts, uh, Brandon, Tracy, as we're wrapping up? You know, I would say for me, a final thought would, would be this, and this is the conversation I've been having all week, and I just said it and I'll say it again, because I think it's worth repeating. We come out on the other side of this talking and doing the same things that we were doing before. We are going to repeat it. It's not destiny. It's just a matter of time. And so although I, I absolutely am thrilled to see other folks out in the street, but if you don't understand what you are seeing and experiencing right now, then I don't know what else to say. Still plenty of people are not believing what's happening here. But as far as the world in which I move through in policing, that blowing off old plans, re-engaging with community in the way in which used to work 25 years ago and even five years ago and even yesterday, 
will not work on the other side of this. And, and we'll see what the future brings. We can't construct it. I think that's part of the problem. So we'll have to see what happens. Absolutely. Brandon? You know, Asada Shakur said, nobody in the world, nobody in history has ever gotten freedom by appealing to the moral sense of the people who were oppressing them. That is something that I have sat with throughout these protests. In every state in America, people are protesting, asking people for us to live in a world where we feel safe, to both live and love freely, is over. If that conversation was still going, it ended the moment George Floyd died. It does not exist anymore. We are no longer asking pretty please with the cherry on top. Black people are prepared. People across the country, across the globe are prepared to ensure that our lives are safe by any means necessary. And right now, I know there's a lot of people who are afraid to engage in the conversation around looting and around violence. But one thing that this teaches us is that both policing and prisons have taught us to address our social conflict using violence, right? What is policing if not violence? What is prisons if not a slow death to people? So, and let us not forget that the United States government has long used violence as a means of addressing its social conflict. So the uprising or the looting or what have you is nothing but the same methodology being used and which has been taught to us on how to address our social conflict using that violence. And so abolition is necessary not only because Black people are getting killed. Abolition is, is required and necessary if we want to live in a world that does not address its conflict using violence. Well, that's some really powerful stuff um, from both of you, Brandon, Tracy, uh... Really appreciate you both coming on the show. Happy to be here. Thank you so much for the time. That's it for this week. Fast Break was produced by Avery Miles. Be sure to check in with us next week for another roundup of helpful tips and creative ideas to stay positive throughout this challenging time. You can subscribe to Fast Break on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. If you like this show, please leave us a rating or a review. Thanks for joining us. I'm Talib Vizran.